All right. How you guys doing? Let's get after it. You guys are excited. It's like my bedtime, but I'm happy to be here. Jordan asked if I'd come and teach, and I was like, I would, I would love to. Not only is it just a, a joy to open God's Word, uh, but to be able to specifically talk to you about what's in it. Uh, you guys are uh, future leaders, current leaders, uh, and uh, you're going to make a difference, and I want to try to spur you on the best I can. So I'm happy to be here. Uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, did you guys start last week a new series in the Sermon on the Mount? All right, let's find it. Let's do it. Matthew uh, chapter 5 is where we're going to be. Uh, and it's, uh, it's good to bring a Bible. It's always better if you see it in front of you uh, rather than just hear somebody talking about it on stage. So get a Bible, bring a Bible, bring a pen, mark it up, learn from it. Uh, that's where we're going to be, Matthew chapter 5. Now, uh, have you, while you're turning there, let me ask you a question. Have you ever looked at the world uh, that you find yourself in and think, somebody needs to do something? Like, this, it's kind of messed up. Like, you see problems, you see brokenness, uh, you see hurt, you see dysfunction. Anybody with me, just like, you look at the world and you think, I think it's got some issues, got some problems. Like, uh, I don't know what world you feel like you're inheriting. Like, okay, th- we're the future, we're taking the jobs, we're taking the market, we're taking the career, we're like, but, but we're kind of inheriting a mess. Anybody feel like that? Okay, th- there's, there's problems that you see a lot of dysfunction in. And listen, um, there's passion, uh, especially at your age, like a good passion of like, we need to make a difference. We need to, make, we need to do better than maybe our parents did. We need to see change. And you can advocate for change. You can be activists in trying to see change. Uh, you can work to, uh, within elections and try to get different leaders in place to make change. Uh, you can try to change laws. But what if the problems are deeper than what a law can fix? What if it's like, okay, you can change the law, but that doesn't mean you're going to change society. You're not going to necessarily make a dent there. Um, But when you look at the world, it's like the world's a big place. And the world's got a lot of problems. And it can feel overwhelming. So let's, let's shrink it back a little bit. You ever just look at our city and think, okay, there's some lost and brokenness within our city. There's dysfunction with it. Let's go even smaller than that. You ever on your campus think somebody ought to do something? Like I just see brokenness in my own friend groups on my dorm floor, on my sports team, uh, with my professors, within my class. Like I just see dysfunction here and think, I think somebody ought to do something. I think somebody ought to make a difference. Do you think you can make a difference? Do you think that this, this group, Salt Company here, could make a difference? Like I'm not talking about... I'm talking about like a real felt like change happened and like this is crazy, this is awesome. Do you think this group could make a difference? And I know like I asked that question and it's like, what are we supposed to say, no? I mean, you're just like, well, yeah, but let's go a little bit deeper. How? How would you go about making like real differences in the world around you, on your campus, on your dorm floor, within your friend group. How, how would that happen? I, I want to talk to you guys about the key to impactful Christianity. 
not just what Christianity is or how you become a Christian or what it means to be a Christian. Uh, I want to talk about the key to impactful Christianity, like how Christians make an impact in the world around them. And I know like for your generation, it may just be foreign to think that Christianity is the answer to making a difference in the world, but the Christians throughout history have like driven social change. Um, the, the reason that... Uh, Slavery came to an end, was driven and spearheaded by Christians. Uh, women's rights was, was driven in the early stages by Christians. Uh, educational system was driven by Christians. You have books today because the printing press, press was made in order to make copies of the Bible. Like that's what's driven those changes. Hospitals, like why do you think it's called St. Luke's? Right? It's driven by, by Christians early in the day. Now, it's not necessarily that way this case now, but you think about even all the major universities, you go back and it's like, that has a religious connection. And I get it, you're in class and like, well, that was a long time ago because I don't think that connection still exists today. Well, it did at one time. Like orphanages that are started all over this planet, driven by Christians. So what happened? Like, have we lost that? Is, is, have we lost kind of an edge of bringing change in our world? So we're in the Sermon on the Mount, and we're not too far into it yet, but right away in this sermon, we're going to get this kind of the key to impactful Christianity. Uh, sermon on the Mount, it's just a creative title. Jesus gave a sermon while on a mountain, so they called it Sermon on the Mount. Um, and what we're going to look at in our passage today is there is a call to be different, in order to make a difference, because Christianity is different. All right, I want to say that again, because this is like it builds on itself, and we'll see this in the text. There's a call to be different in order to make a difference, because Christianity is different. And this is early on in Jesus' ministry, and he's kind of like coming on the scene, and he gives this famous sermon. Sermon on, It's not a long sermon. It'll probably take 15 minutes to read through it. Um, but he gives this kind of uh, kicking off uh, his ministry. This is what I'm about. And he gives this, this sermon. And we're going to see verses 13 through 20 today. But I want to point out... Um, Two things that probably you've heard before in this text. So uh, the first part of verse 13 says this, you are the salt of the earth. And then verse 14 says, you are the light of the world. Anybody ever hear those phrases before? You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Like that, that's where this, this is where that comes from. Um, and this is kind of, it's like a big deal message because th this is what? The salt company. Like, this is the namesake. So it's like, you get the, your name from this passage. So we want to understand, okay, what does that mean? If you're the SALT company, and SALT, it's not an acronym. It's not like students against lazy teachers or whatever it could be. Like, uh, SALT comes from this text. You are the SALT company. Um, so your name, your meaning, which should shape the culture of this ministry, comes from this verse. So we want to uh, understand it. And when it says, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, in the Greek there, the you is emphatic. What it just means is like, there is a, a, an emphasis on you. It's like, I'm talking to you. You. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Now, uh, let's kind of dig into it to better understand it. Salt, um, during this time, was used as a preservative. Like, it's how you make meat last or go from soil. You pack it in salt. 
it, it added flavor. You would use salt to add flavor. If, if sometimes salt like that wasn't good for that, it would, it would go on roads to kind of harden a road or on a roof to kind of help um, you seal a roof. But uh, the uses that you would want to use it is it would act as a preservative. That was the most common use of salt there and then flavor within your food. Light, now this isn't tricky, uh, light would help you see. If you're in the dark, uh, you light a lamp in your, in your house and it lights up so you can see. So he's not using like tricky analogies like, oh, what does he mean? He means what you think it means. It's salt, it's light, it's common, uh, and he's using this to help them understand something. Now, we want to be good Bible students, so when you come to study the Bible, words matter and, you, and meanings matter, and it's a good thing when you're studying the Bible to ask questions. So one question I would have as I'm reading through this are what are these illustrations saying about the world? Because he says, you're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world. Okay, so what, what are those illustrations? What point is Jesus making about the world? Well, if you're the salt of the earth, one of the things that he's saying about the earth, the world, is it's decaying. Like it's, it's decaying. It's going bad. And you need to be a preservative to this world because here's what's happening to it. Like if you're not around, it's going to decay. And it, it, it will decay. It is decaying. It's going bad. And it needs preserving. Or it's bland. And it needs some flavor. Or if it's light, he's saying you're the light of the world. And what is he saying about the world? It's in darkness. It's in darkness. Now, would you agree with that assessment from Jesus in that sermon? It's like, yeah, I could see the world kind of decaying, going bad. I can see that the world is in darkness. That's the conclusions he's making about the world that we live in, even at this time, um, to these, these believers here. So, okay, so what is this illustration calling us to do then? If you can see the conclusion he's making about the world, that it's in darkness, that it's, it's decaying, then, then what is this illustration calling us to do? Well, Salt is different than the meat, but it gets applied to it. Light is different than the darkness, but it gets shown into it. So he's saying, you are distinct from the world, but you need to be engaged in it in order to be influential in it. Like you, you need to be different from the world, but you need to be engaged in the world in order to make an influence in the world. That's what he's saying. Just like uh, salt, you are a preservative. So when you like, go back to the verses from last week, when you get all those beatitudes, when you uh, hunger and thirst for righteousness, when you're merciful, when you're pure in heart, when you're peacemakers, when, when you... Uh, our poor in spirit, when, when you live out these things, it's like when you're living for Christ, when you're living for God, you are uh, not just being good, you are holding back evil in this world. You, you are um, slowing the process of decay and evil in this world by being in it and acting or reflecting God and godliness in your life. That's, that's what he's saying you're doing. Or when you are... Um, living compassionately, living with a heart for God, a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. When you kind of function that way, you are flavoring an evil world. You are giving a, a taste of something different is what he's calling them to. Now, technically, salt enhances flavor, 
Like it doesn't have its own flavor, it just kind of takes flavors and enhance it. Like so, uh, if you eat corn on the cob, you put salt on that uh, and you eat it and nobody eats corn on the cob and thinks that's really good salt, right? Nobody says that, they say that's good corn. But if you eat corn on the cob with no salt, some of you in here probably do that, you should repent. Um, <laughs> you think that's not good corn. Now, the corn is not the problem. It's like it has no flavor. You didn't put salt on the corn. So salt enhances flavor. That's, that's what it does. So what the point he's making here is um, the same is true for people. So like salt makes it better. The same thing would be true in this world. People are going to say, um, man, I love this school. I, I love this job. I love being on this team. I, I love being, living on this dorm floor. And you're like, why? It's like, I don't know. It, it's good. And you're like, okay, well, let me diagnose why, according to Jesus here. Because there's so many Christians involved in it. Like, like, there's so many people that hunger and thirst for righteousness that are involved in it. There's so many people that love God and love mercy and have compassion and live this godly life. That's what, like, makes it better. Like, they may not diagnose that, but they're going to say, like, there's something about this. It's like, yeah, it's godly people scattered about you. And this, the opposite is true, too. This job sucks. This team sucks. I hate living on this floor. I hate this school. You're like, why? There's no salt. There, there's no like godly people living out godly uh, behaviors in their life. You're not experiencing mercy and people who hunger and thirst for righteousness and compassion. And they, they don't have worry. You'll get to that in the text. Like you're not seeing Christ-like people around you and it's taking a flavor away. But when you have Christ-like people around you, it adds a flavor that enhances the things of this world and makes it better. He's saying, boy, this world needs that. And without it, it just doesn't taste as it should. So are you making your dorm better? Are you making your classes better? Are you making your friend group better because of the godliness that you display in your life? Are you slowing the spread of evil because you're there? Because you're there like representing something different, showing something different? What about light? Light shines into the darkness and helps people see. Light creates a contrast. Like when you shine light into a dark room, you see a contrast between light and dark. It exposes things. If the room's dark and you didn't see the chair there and you shine a light, then you see the chair there. But it exposes things. Do you expose anything? Do you create any contrast? Like when you're with your friend group and, and they're doing something they shouldn't do, do you expose, like, no, that's stupid. Like, we shouldn't do that. Do you, do you create a contrast where it's like, we're all doing this, and you're like, no, oh, this is a different way to live, and I'm going I'm to show you that because I'm there? Like, do you create that contrast? Like, like if you have a group of friends and they're going to say, hey, let's pick on this kid, and you're like, let's not. <laughs> like, that's what was going to happen until you kind of spoke up and said, no, let, let's be kind. Let's do something different. That's what shining light into the darkness is. I'm going to show you a contrast. I'm going to show you something different. Like, I'm going to help you see something you don't see. Are you being light like that? Because here, here's the point. You got to be different to make a difference. You got to be different to make a difference. Like, you can't be the meat and the salt. You can't be darkness and the light. 
Like he's saying, there's, there's a distinction here. There's a difference, and he's calling us to be one of those. And I, I don't mean be different like everybody's different, everybody's unique, you just do you, and you kind of be your own little special, unique, different. I'm not talking about uh, that in like your personality or anything. When I say be different, I'm talking about be uniquely Christian. Like you be uniquely Christian. You follow Jesus in a context, in a world, in a setting where no one else is following Jesus. You, you show something different. You're, you're a unique follower of Christ. But, and here's the question, what if Christians are no different? What, what if the Christians are no different than everybody around them? What, what if you, and I get not everybody in this room maybe a Christian, maybe you're just here because a friend invited you or whatever, that's awesome. But there's some people, I'm going to say a majority, this is a church group that in here is like, yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian. What, what if you would call yourself a Christian? You don't act any different than your non-Christian friends. You watch the same stuff. You talk the same way. You interact with people the same way. You, have, you share the same habits. Like, like there's really no distinction between you at all. Would that be a problem? Here's, here's what Jesus says in this. Look back at our text. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, some of you, I don't know if there's science nerds in here or anything, but you'd be like, well, actually, sodium chloride is a, a constant variable, and it's not going to break down. Um, well, <clears throat> you could be saying, is he making a point that if you're really, truly salt, then you're not going to lose your saltiness? Actually, at this time, the way they would mine salt, kind of like these marshes, is it would kind of break down and decompose where it wouldn't be, it's still salt, but it wouldn't be used in a way to preserve food. It would be like to patch a roof or to harden a road. That's what he's saying. Like, if you're kind of not the salt we need, then what, what good is it? Or uh, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. He's like, who would do that? Why, why would anybody do it? Why would you light a lamp and then cover it up? That completely defeats the purpose. That doesn't make sense. And those are some harsh words. He's like, hey, if you, you're supposed to be salt, but if you're not salt, you, what good are you? You're supposed to be light, but if you cover your light up, what good is that? What, what difference is that going to make? And then he's challenging them. Now, those are some tough words, but listen, this may be the biggest struggle in front of you. You, you may not realize it, but, but I'm going to say that it may be the biggest struggle in front of you. It, it's certainly one of the biggest threats facing the church. Christians that aren't really that Christian. Christians that aren't really that Christian. They don't live passionately for Jesus. They don't look any different than the world around them. You know, it's interesting. This has kind of stood out to me lately in, in Scripture, kind of reading through it. Um, but trying to understand uh, the downfall of the nation of Israel. If you read the Old Testament, you kind of um, see this course of like things went bad for them. And you're like, how did that happen? Because this is a, a group of people that were enslaved in Egypt for over 400 years. They're miraculously rescued. Uh, oh, out of one of the greatest superpowers in human history in Egypt at the time. How, how did these slaves escape 
and then cross the Red Sea in a miraculous way, go into a promised land, and just kind of march around a fortified city, blowing their trumpets, and it falls down miraculously. And, and this group of slaves who have no military training, no military weapons, go in and conquer a promised land. How did, how did they, what was their downfall? Like, how did that group that has God Almighty fighting their battles, how did they fail? Who beat them? Did anybody know who beat them? They did. And what was the downfall of Israel? They wanted to be like other nations. They wanted to fit in. Or let me put it this way. They wanted to fit in with pagans. That was their downfall. Is that your downfall? Do you struggle with that? Do you struggle with wanting to fit in? Wanting to be liked? And you can look at me like, well, duh. Yeah. We all do. It's normal. I'm just here to tell you, and it's really dangerous. It's really dangerous. Let's, let's give our verse some context. So look back at verse 11. He says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. That's tough. I don't care who you are. When somebody is like saying nasty things about you, insulting you, making fun of you, alienating you, not including you. Like, that's not fun. That hurts. Like, that's, that's tough to go through, especially if it's like they're doing it on account of you trying to be a good and godly person because it says, on my account. Anybody ever feel that way? That somebody slandered you, spoken, made fun of you? He said, that's That's rough. That's tough, and sometimes we want to avoid that, and in order to avoid that, we'll put our light under a basket, and then we're not salty anymore, and then what good is it? See, Jesus is calling people to be different or uniquely Christian uh, in order to make a difference, but being Christian like that can be hard, and it's not gonna, everybody's not going to like it, and some people may have some hard things to say to you or about you, and there's a sense that, hey, Christianity demands courage. It commands courage. Like, that's why Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow me. They hated me first. They're going to hate you. Like he said, you better count the cost to this. This isn't for the faint of heart. This isn't for the weak. Like, if you're just a punk, it's not going to last. Like, you got to have some courage here. you got to have some toughness to follow me. You need to be strong and courageous. That says over and over again in the Old Testament. But do we get any help in this text for that? Like, do we get any help when it comes to gaining courage? Is, is there any motivation in here to take a stand to be different? Like, how do we overcome that temptation or that pull just to fit in? Like, because it, it exists. Is there any hope in this text or any motivation in this text to help us overcome that desire just to fit in? Here's what we have to get. Jesus is not just calling us to be different. And he's not just calling us to make a difference. He's offering something different. He's offering something different. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is giving a contrast between the religious of the day 
and Christianity or what he's offering. He's making a, a clear contrast. That's why when you keep going through this sermon, it's going to be like, you may have heard it said this, but I say this. You may have heard it said this, but I say this. He's giving a contrast of like, this is religion that you're used to. Yeah, that's not what I'm here offering. I'm here offering something completely different. I'm showing you something different. This is about how uh, Christianity is different than religion and how real Christianity makes a difference. And that just makes a difference in this world. It makes a difference in you, which empowers you to make a difference in this world. You track with me there? Okay, that's super encouraging, but we'll keep going. Verse 17, uh, look down here. Here's what he says. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot. It's not like, it'll be like a little dash in Hebrew, like a comma kind of thing. He says, we'll pass away from the law until it's all accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's bold. So you see those like most famous, most devoted religious people? Yeah, unless you're better than them, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Like, whoa. What, what, what is it that you're trying to say here? He's saying, I don't, don't think that I'm here to abolish the law or misinterpret the law or undermine the law, because that was some accusations thrown his way. He's like, no, no, no that's not, I'm not anti-law. That's, that's not what I'm here to do. I'm here to help you understand what the heart of the law has been all along. I'm here to help you understand what the heart of the law has been all along, because the law was more than just rules. It's an important thing to understand, because sometimes we can just think law rules. When the Bible uses the word law, it's talking about more than just a set of rules. It was a system for the Israelites to represent and relate to God. So it wasn't just commands, it was also sacrifices. Now here's something that's very interesting and unique about um, the Jewish law that got set up for the Israelites. When they come out of 400 years of slavery, God saves them. Now he saved them before he gave them the law. That's important to understand. So he rescues them out of Egypt and he gives them the law. But here's something unique that you don't see in other religions. A lot of religions have rules and have laws and have standards and have expectations. Uh, But no other religion answers the question, what do I do if I can't keep my own standards? Like, what, what am I supposed to do? Like, my religion says this, great, I agree with it, but what am I supposed to do when I don't do that, when I can't do that? So here's what God does. He gives the Israelites the law, the Ten Commandments, the rules on how to live. Then he says, now I'm going to give you the sacrificial system. So here's what you do when you fail to keep my law. Why would he do that? Like, God has this full anticipation of like, here's my righteous standard. And by the way, you're not going to be able to keep it. I already know that. You you are not going to be able to live up. So here's what you do when you don't. Here's the sacrificial system. Here's the day of atonement. Here's here's these different kind of sacrifices that I want you to go through. That's kind of what encompasses the law. Now, Jesus says, I'm here to accomplish the law, to fulfill the law. I've come, I haven't come to do away with the law. I'm here to fulfill it. And there's a 
There's a righteous standard in which he fulfills, and there's a sacrificial requirement in which he fulfills. So uh, if you remember, Jesus comes on the scene. He's about to get baptized by John the Baptist. John the Baptist looks at him and says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Why would he call him a lamb? Because it's part of the sacrificial system. Or or here's a passage in Hebrews. This is Hebrews uh, chapter 7. He says this, for former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he, Jesus, continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has... No need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, like earlier um, than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever." So he's, he's fulfilling this law, like he's the, the great high priest, but he doesn't have to have a successor because he never dies. He can continue doing that, what the law talked about, and he's offering sacrifices where the priest would always offer sacrifice and sacrifice and sacrifice, but he, he doesn't need to keep doing that because he was the final sacrifice. He accomplished or fulfilled the law. Or here's what's in Romans chapter 8. It says this, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. It could not change a human heart. It could not save anybody. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law in the Old Testament, the standard of God, might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Jesus fulfills the law. He's like, I'm here to accomplish it. I not only just meet the righteous standard and live a perfect life, which the law lays out, I'm also here to fulfill the law in the being the final complete sacrifice uh, that, that can reconnects you with God. That's what he's here for. And notice that last part in, in Romans 8. For those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. God's grace doesn't mean we aren't called to walk in holiness. His grace isn't permission for you to sin. It's power to be different. So so go back to the Sermon on the Mount. Um, He says this in verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He's calling people to be righteous, to be holy. Like he, he is... He's saying, you need to be righteous. That is a good thing for you to pursue. But it's like, how do you do that? He's talking about a righteous that surpasses the scribes and Pharisees. And what he means by that is, I'm not talking about just your external righteousness, that you look better than everybody else, that you have this like show that you can put on and everybody would look at you and like, wow, they're godly. He's like, no, I'm talking about real heart change. I'm talking about real heart change. Listen, you don't change the world through laws. Laws communicate standards. You change the world through hearts, people. You change the way people live, you begin to change the world. And the Sermon on the Mount shows us what a life looks like that has been transformed by the gospel. And here's why I say 
gospel because it's like, well, this is early in Jesus' ministry. He hasn't, he hasn't died yet. He hasn't been buried yet. He hasn't raised from the dead yet. Like, why, why are you saying gospel here? Because Jesus is introducing a gospel perspective in this sermon. He's talking about a close, reconciled, loving relationship with God, which Jesus accomplishes. So this is the beginning of his ministry. And at the end of his ministry, when he dies on the cross and raises from the grave, he accomplishes our redemption and, and he reconciles us back to God. He forgives us of our sins. He gives us his righteousness. Like all of that happens. But in this kind of sermon that launches his ministry, he's kind of saying, boy, can you imagine if you had a right relationship with God? Can you imagine if you had this closeness to God, because look back at verse 16. This is important language that he uses. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your, what? Anybody got it open? What's the word? Father. Now, you probably read over that so often and just think, oh, yeah, that's churchy language. But you've got to understand how that would hit in this sermon. And he's kind of like launching his ministry. I'm talking about your father who is in heaven. Like there, there's, a, there's a closeness here. And later in the sermon, when he tells you how to pray, what is it? Our father who art in heaven. And then when he commands us not to worry... A little bit further in this sermon, why do we not supposed to worry? Because your heavenly Father knows how to take care of you. Guys, listen, the Sermon on the Mount is impossible to live out unless you know you're loved. Unless you know you're loved. You don't, and this comes up in the sermon as you read it, but like you don't give money so other people see you and think you're super generous and then they'll like you or accept you. you. You give money because your heavenly father who sees in secret sees you. You, you don't fast so, so everybody can look at you and be like, wow, how spiritual you are. You, you, you're really devoted. Now, now you have social status. Now you have belonging. Now you have respect. It's like, no, 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 you, you, you do it where nobody notices because your heavenly, what? Father sees you and rewards you. you. You don't go out on the street corner and pray super loud and fancy so everybody can see you, and then you have social status, and then you have social credibility, and then people respect you. No, that's not how you do it. You go into your room and you shut the door because your heavenly, what? Father who sees you in secret rewards you. Like, this is a total paradigm shift. He's like, hey, when you understand that you're loved by God, that changes the way you live. You don't need other people's approval and acceptance, and you don't need to fit in anymore. You don't need them to like you. You're, like, free now because you have a heavenly Father who loves you. It's like, you get that? Because when you get that, that'll change your world. That'll change you to somebody who can change the world. Now you begin to live differently when you understand how you're loved. And you don't need to like gain success and accomplishments and get promoted and be the boss and get like all these achievements because your heavenly father is ready to reward you. Go back to verse 11 and 12. It says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
He's like ready to reward you. And, and it's important that our verses, I think, are understood in light of the verses that come right before it, or verses 11 and 12. Because you talk about creating a contrast. You, you could talk about adding some flavor. Here's what he's saying. If you can be persecuted and reviled and people talk bad about you and alienate you and mistreat you and you rejoice and you're like, I'm good. I got rewards in heaven. Like, I'm, I'm good. I got a father who loves me. Like, you can take all of that and you have unshakable joy. Then he says, oh, that's salt. That'll light up the world. There's a connection between being salt and light and being with, able to withstand the social alienation from the world that comes from being a follower of Jesus. And if you can do that and not be bothered because you don't fit in with the cool kids anymore and you still have joy, that's being salty. That'll light up the world. And you're like, how do I do that? You don't need their approval when you know that you have a heavenly who loves you. Do you know that? Do you know you got a heavenly father that loves you? Like, do you know it in a such a way that it's changed the way that you live? See, be different. Be different in order to make a difference by understanding that Christianity is different. It's different. It's not religion. It's not just telling you how to behave. It's telling you that you have a heavenly father who loves you. And if you get that, then you'll change how you live. Completely different. And Jesus is saying, listen, no, no, you may have heard say this, but I got something different to tell you. I'm not here to offer you religion. I'm here to offer you relationship. And when I offer you relationship and you get it, you're going to light this world up. But you got to see the connection. Do you guys um, understand that I'm... You, you're like, yeah, we do. You understand how a, a lunar eclipse works? Have you ever seen a lunar eclipse? Have, have more than two people ever seen a lunar eclipse? Okay. Like, got to work with me here, people. Like, let's, let's interact a little bit. Um, so here, here's how it works. The moon, like a full moon, kind of lights up the night. You ever been out on night when it's a full moon? It's kind of bright. We know that the moon does not admit light. The moon what? reflects light from the sun. So all you're seeing when you see a bright full moon is the light reflecting from the sun off the moon. And it'll light up the night. Now, a lunar eclipse happens when the earth or the world gets in the way between the moon and the sun. And it blocks out the light of the moon because it gets in the way between the moon and the sun. Well, it's kind of like you have a light to give off, but it's not from you. It, it's from the Son, the Son of God. And, and when you get his love for you, and you have this kind of direct, plus, like there's a reflection that the world is seeing in me, um, but it's not me, it's, it's God. And I can light up the darkness with the light that I'm getting from God and his love. But when the world gets in between you and God, your light goes out. There's, there's this eclipse. Like the world becomes too important to you. The world becomes what you're focused on. And you got no light. Is that happening to you? Is the world getting in between you and Jesus? Like you don't light up the world because you're in love with the world. 
you're not preserving anything because you're just trying to fit in. Because here's what I want you to remember. Knowing you are loved by God empowers you to be different for God. Don't lose sight of that. Don't, don't lose sight of that by just over-focusing on what this world is offering you. You lose sight of how you are loved by God and you will start looking for love in all the wrong places and you will start looking for value in all the wrong places and you will start looking for belonging in the wrong places. And if you just want to fit in in this world, you won't make a difference in it. Because let me just tell you, I understand the, the draw to want to be liked and to want to fit in and have acceptance among your peers. But, but hear me. Let it go. Just let it go. You are loved by God. You don't need their approval. And when you don't need their approval and you don't need to, them to like you, you are more free to love them because you know you're loved. But if you have this desire, like we saw in the Israelites, that you just want to fit in, you won't make a difference. You won't make a difference. I'm telling you, when you are truly, when we are truly different for God, which is what it means to be holy. Holy just means to be set apart. When you are set apart, when you're different for God, we will make a difference in this world, in this city, on your campus, in your team, on your dorm floor. You'll be light. You'll be salt. You know another thing that salt does? Makes people thirsty. Can you imagine people looking at you and getting thirsty for God? Like, wait a second. How are you still happy after they just said that about you? Like, like how are you unshaken by the, how are you so free and you don't want to fit in with everybody and you don't like chasing approval? Like, where does that come from? And they just want what you have. Wouldn't that be awesome? Guys, if this, this salt company in Cedar Rapids was actually salty for Jesus, can you imagine the difference that it would make? Like, do you believe it could make a changing impact? I mean, it's how revivals start. This is important, and I'll be, I'll be done here, but I want you to get this. Revivals don't start by reaching lost people. That's just like a a byproduct of revivals. Revivals don't start by reaching lost people. Revivals start with Christians that get serious about being Christians. That's how revivals begin. When Christians are like, no, I'm desperate to follow Jesus. If that could start within this group, and you start really shining a light, and you start really being salty, that'd be incredible. And you want to know another interesting fact historically about revivals? They've all, and I'm going to say all, have started with young people. Young people. They get serious about following Jesus Christ. And when young people get serious about following Jesus Christ, when they have this attitude of, I don't care if I fit in or not, I'm with Jesus. I have a heavenly father who loves me, and Jesus looks at them and be like, I'm going to do something with you. That's salty. Let's light up the world. So let me, let me close with this. In fact, I'd like to just ask, ask you a favor. 
could you be salt and light for this church? Like, could you help the adults in this church recapture a passion for Jesus Christ? Like, would you be the people setting the pace for that? Like, could young people start a revival in Veritas? Because there's story after story about how you are bold and passionate for the gospel on your campus. And they come here on Sundays and they see you sitting together and you guys are passionate worshipers. Like, be salt here. Be light here. Start a revival here. Please? Because that would be so incredible. And if I could give my life to something like that, I will cheer you on. I will make whatever video telling whatever story of you being sold out for the gospel. I will bring any of you up on stage to tell your story, and we will clap, and we will cheer, and we'll say, please, be the group of people that are salt and light for God's sake. And you can. You don't have to be scared. Do you know why? Because you have a heavenly what? Who loves you. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for this group. And I pray that you would breathe a boldness and encourage into them that they would go into their campuses, they would go into their classrooms, to their sports teams, to their friend groups, on their dorms, and they would be unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because the power of God for salvation who all believe that this group would begin to take following you seriously, repenting of sin, being holy, uh, worshiping you, serving you, loving you, and we would see what you would do with a group of people that's passionate for you. We pray this in your name. Amen.